One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never, or I'm sorry, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he could heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out in his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sandy. And would you be seated? That's wonderful. And I'll turn it off. Again, uh, please do keep that Bible open. Um, We're going to be going back and forth to it. We love God's Word here, and we want you to have a copy of it. Take that if you do not have a copy of God's Word. Um, And we're going to be, again, in Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3 through verse 6. You ready to get to work? I can't tell you how excited I am to be back in the gospel according to Mark today, and I hope you are as well. We normally walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, not just skipping for the ones Pastor Evan really likes, but looking and seeing what God really wants us to hear. Um, and sometimes it does pick a fight with me too. So I, uh, we're in Mark chapter 2, verse 22, and then going through 3, verse 6. And this gospel is all about the nature and work of Jesus Christ. And uh, as a reminder, because it's been a while and some of us may have never, uh, never have read Mark before. This is actually not the gospel, this is not, uh, the book is not titled Mark. It's titled The Gospel According to Mark. And this book is, uh, was compiled by a man named John Mark, who many knew as Mark. It was his Greek name, and it's full of stories and teachings from Jesus's life. But before we, we need to know a little bit about how John Mark's gospel works. It's not a history book or a biography per se, at least how we might think of these. Instead, this book, which may have been the very first written account of Jesus's life and teaching, is history with a point. It's not just giving us geeky facts. It's history looking to prove something, something about Jesus and to offer the same choice that Jesus makes to the crowds that followed him to accept or reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. Not just as teacher, but as Savior and Lord. In fact, perhaps the key verse in Mark, and one that we're going to talk about quite a bit, and comes in chapter 1, this comes from Jesus, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, 
Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the purpose. All of us would hear the gospel made clear. Not just learn a good example from Jesus, but do as he has instructed us to do, to repent and believe in the good news about him. So, in our passage today that we just had read in the gospel of Mark, we find Jesus in the midst of a fight. So much for the meek and mild Jesus that you might be used to in paintings or on flannel graphs. This is uh, Jesus we find um, in the Bible is one who is picking fights all the time and winning them. He uh, is, um, because in many ways, this, uh, Jesus is looking to prove something about his identity. In this passage, we find out this, uh, the particular conflict and the one that Jesus is in is such a big deal that it says in verse 23, the people left, the Pharisees left, and plotted how to destroy him. I mean, this is really dramatic, isn't it? Like, <laughs> what in the world would provoke them to have such a response, to see that their only action, their only recourse would be to destroy him? After all the kind of discussions I have with my fellow pastors about really important things, baptism or communion or what kind of songs we should and shouldn't sing, we disagree with one another, sometimes pretty strongly, but I've never left a meeting with a fellow pastor and wanted to plot their destruction. I hope that they haven't felt the same about me. But of course, this passage isn't just about a particular religious practice. It's even one as important as Sabbath. It has to do more importantly with who Jesus is, and that's really what I want you to get today. As we go through the Gospel of Mark, we need to know what is, who is Jesus claiming to be? What Jesus' purpose is for us not just, again, to take him as we wish he was, not to just take him as a teacher who impresses us or a revolutionary, but to take him as he reveals himself as Savior and Lord. And so we're going to look at his identity, which turns to pick fights um, with us, all of us, though it's central to the gospel itself. And so we're going to talk about Sabbath today. We're going to talk about the premise of Sabbath, number one, the purpose of Sabbath, number two, the problem with Sabbath, and then finally, the point of Sabbath. Let's start with the first of these, the premise of Sabbath. So I want you to picture these events again, what happens to Jesus. Jesus, again, has this interaction with his disciples who are picking grain, and they get accused all of a sudden by these, uh, by these religious leaders. And then he uh, is in uh, the synagogue, and a man with a withered hand is in need of healing, and, but kind of, you could, we can almost assume avoiding people, and Jesus calls him out, come forward, and he knows the Pharisees are looking for a chance to accuse him on Sabbath, and so doesn't touch the man at all, and just tells him to extend his hand, and the withered man, you think he was terrified, well, in this kind of circumstance, put on the spot, he's been hiding from the crowds his whole life, know that this makes him unclean, and then God calls him out, in, and then Jesus calls him out, and then heals this hand in front of everybody. So then the Pharisees, they just freak out about both of these circumstances. It's not the first time. They've accused Jesus of being a blasphemer. They've accused him of being a friend of sinners. They've accused him of being a religious lightweight who doesn't even take fasting seriously. And now they accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker. Have you called anybody that today? Or when you were really angry in a fight, you Sabbath breaker? For us, we don't really understand why this would be such a big deal, so I want to answer actually two questions for us that we might have in coming to this passage that are enormously important. What is the Sabbath? And second, who are the Pharisees? 
So in Exodus chapter 20, we find something called the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, you may have heard these as a kid, you may not be aware of them at all, but these ten rules that God gives were the central commands that God gave to a man called Moses, uh, which specified how his people would enjoy a relationship of love with God and with one another. These are the ten central rules, in many ways, the rest of the law unpacked. And I want us to look at one of them, number four, verse eight in chapter 20 of Exodus, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do You shall not do, excuse me, any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So number four of the commandments and the longest one that we have in fact, you notice in this, if you, know, if you read the rest of the Ten Commandments, they're usually, you shall not do something. Well, in number four, what is it saying? You shall do something. This is a positive frame. This is one that's saying, you, you remember the Sabbath day. Do this. Keep it holy. Why in the world would God spend so much time unpacking something that many of us may not even practice today? Sabbath, or Shabbat, is the word that it comes from in the Hebrew. Uh, is a, it comes from the Hebrew for rest. It's what it means. Sabbath means rest. And from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, they were to do no work. No one. No one in their kingdom. Um, no, yeah, no one in the land of Israel. No man, woman, or child. Even slaves and livestock were required by God to take a break from their work to rest. Now, we are in a day and time where many people live for the weekends, right? So, TGIF, thank goodness for Friday, or thank God for Friday, right? It's, uh, or it's Friday. TGIF, we live for the weekend. We may not get quiet what, uh, how strange it is then for something like Sabbath to have existed. We can miss how remarkable it is. One of the things that marked Jewish people, in fact, distinctly as Jewish, was this rest that would take place amongst everyone, even their animals. In fact, it made them look really strange. This was not a common practice. There wasn't a weekend where people chilled out and popped on Disney+. Plus. You see, for much of Israel's history, the majority of people lived on the verge of poverty. Some of you know what that's like. Where a day's wages provided for a day's food. Anybody lived paycheck to paycheck? You can almost hear the scoffs then of the people around them who are looking on these strange Jews and saying, wait a second. Okay, so times are just as poor and desperate for you as they are for me. And let me get this straight. Your God wants to put you behind every week. He wants you to waste a day on some religious holiday. And he wants you to do that week after week after week. That God wants to refuse you income? Good luck with that. You can see, of all the Ten Commandments, this is one of the longest, perhaps because God knows that the Israelites would struggle to obey this one perhaps more than any other. Okay, so thou shalt not murder. Got that one. Check. But Sabbath was another matter entirely. Rest was risky. You know, I have trouble resting. It's perhaps my personality. My personality. 
Grace will tell you this, but the Israelites even more so. In a day, again, when the majority of people lived on the edge of poverty, a 24-hour period of rest, even a 24-hour period, could be a terrifying task, more anxious than even the busiest day of work. Anybody else finds, find that, uh, maybe you're like me, that rest makes you anxious? You ever find it's difficult to shut your mind off? You find yourself running over and over again the things that need to be taken care of, all that needs your attention? Do you ever struggle taking work home? We live in a time where many of us just can't clock out. We have work phones, and on those phones, even our personal ones, you can get your work email, and you check it even on your days off. Some of you just checked it. Stop it. We shift, uh, then perhaps some of us, from work. Maybe we like checking out of work, but then we shift to a different kind of work, maybe to groom our social media image, to see how many likes and comments that we're getting. Some of you, again, just checked Facebook right now. Please don't. We can't seem to stop working. One can understand why, over time, Israel began to neglect the Sabbath until, of course, the whole nation was taken by God into exile by Babylon because they had basically treated God as if he wasn't God, as if his rules didn't lay claim on them long enough that they faced the consequence of those actions and were taken as a people into exile. They were removed from the, plan, the land that they were promised. And in Jeremiah 17 and in Amos 8, really all over the Old Testament, it says one of the major reasons that they would go into exile is because they disregarded, of all things, the Sabbath. It's an offense in the Old Testament that was even punishable by death. Can you imagine that? Rest or else. It's no wonder, then, that when they finally returned from exile, knowing how seriously God does take their sin, of all the things that they were intent on restoring, on making sure that would never be betrayed again, Sabbath taught the list. And that brings us to the second question, who in the world are the Pharisees? Well, over time, as they had been returned from exile, and again, their job is not to tick God off, a group of people called the Pharisees and the scribes uh, sought to protect religious, uh, sorry, sought to protect Israel from religious corruption and impurity. They, uh, their job, in other words, was to know the law of God and to know it so well that they would teach it to others and to protect others from betraying it, not because they were spoil sports, these kind of snub-nosed, holier-than-thou. No, it was because they, they were, and it's not because they were theology nerds either. They saw... Uh, Every, what everyone else did, they, they saw that they were under the heavy hand of Rome, and they hated every day of it. Every day that they were under Rome's hand, again, they longed for God's rescue. They longed for the Savior that they were promised. And they asked God, how long until you send him? The Pharisees, they saw that the best way to guarantee that God would send the Savior was to stay as far from compromise as possible especially since it was compromise, after all, that landed them in the exile. And so, to keep them from betraying the law, breaking these rules, and from compromise, they set up some, you might call them house rules, a fence around the law, like a parent who might say, okay, kids, I know I said watch for cars coming. I'm just going to tell you, stay out of the street entirely, right? So think house rules, keep them as far from compromise as possible. These became known as the oral laws. Uh, This was, and they were 
codified. They were put into a book called um, the Mishnah, which present, present Jews know of today. And they, uh, what the Mishnah did is it took the laws of God and it tried to apply them to concrete, specific circumstances. It tried to uh, apply God's original laws to everyday life, including and especially the Sabbath. In fact, when it came to the Sabbath, the Mishnah, this book that the Pharisees helped to, uh, to contributed to, stipulated 39 kinds of work that you could not do on the Sabbath. 39. Including some that we might expect. You can't plow. You can't go hunting. But here's some of the others. Tying and loosening knots. Sewing more than one stitch. Can you imagine that? Like, all right, one. All right, guess I gotta wait till tomorrow. And here's another one that just blows my mind. You couldn't reset a dislocated joint. Imagine telling that to the person who just popped their hip out of socket. Well, I guess we gotta wait till Sunday. <laughs> this, uh, this, uh, this was a, uh, these laws sought to apply to God's law to everyday circumstances, answer every conceivable question, because maintaining Sabbath was a matter of guaranteeing their Savior of making sure God would not abandon them, and along with circumcision, they took great national pride in how seriously they took it now. They were not going back to where we once were. Look at what we do now. And all of this brings us to the passage in which Jesus, who was uh, growing in popularity, in fact, the growing consensus is that he might be the Savior that they were promised a long time ago. That is, everyone is getting excited for him except the religious teachers, the ones who were in charge of caring for Israel. They saw, as they saw it, Jesus, if anyone was going to be this, it's not Jesus. He simply could not be it. Certainly his power was pretty remarkable. They would call it even supernatural. In fact, that's what made him so frustrating. They didn't understand why he was able to do what he did because surely a teacher of God would take God's laws more seriously than Jesus did, you know, like, like they do. Instead, they saw Jesus as being perfectly content to hang out with lawbreakers. His disciples disregarded something even as basic as fasting, and they're pretty sure, they're pretty sure that he claimed the ability to forgive sins, something they knew only God had the authority to do. They were certain if anyone was going to be the savior and teacher they had waited for, it was not going to be Jesus. And for the sake of others, they saw it as their job to reveal him as the charlatan he was. Only they didn't really have anything they could pin on him yet. They didn't have anything, at least legally, they could take him to trial. Something clear enough to disqualify him in public. That is, until now. They had caught Jesus and his disciples red-handed. They had broken the Sabbath. First, they caught the uh, disciples um, reaping of all things, right? So taking the grain as they're passing by from these sheaves they, they, and chewing on them. Anybody ever do that? I, was, it, I, I did not grow up farming, but like wheat gum, chew the kernels until it turned into kind of a gum. This kind of thing. So they, they were feeding themselves off these kernels that was considered reaping, okay? And so that was number three in the top 39 things you shouldn't do on the Sabbath. And then in front of everyone else, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. But, Technically speaking, they would say, he, okay, so he didn't like say be healed or anything. He didn't touch the man. He had just, I mean, he, he technically, they couldn't write him up for anything. But it was the spirit of things. They were pretty sure that Jesus was defiantly 
like in their face, disregarding them. Them, the guardians of Israel. Can you imagine something, someone like Jesus? This leads to our second point, the purpose of the Sabbath. Okay, so I want you to imagine with me, if you could, a grandfather who uh, has in his garage under a tarp a restored 69 Chevy Camaro Z28. Custom leather seats, crisp red paint job. And he, uh, little does his grandson know that he plans to give this car to his grandson after he graduates high school. High school graduation comes up and he hands the keys over to this somewhat stunned young man. Take care of her, son. A, f- a few months pass, okay, and this, this uh, grandfather comes to his grandson and says, well, grandson, what do you think of her? The grandson gets confused. What do you mean, grandpa? What do you th- think I mean? What do you think of the car? How does she handle? Have you taken any of your friends out for a drive? To which the grandson looks even more shocked at his grandfather. Drive it? I haven't, I haven't touched it. Didn't you tell me to take care of it, granddad? I think you would say he missed the point, didn't he? Jesus' point here is that they have missed the purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't argue. It's interesting how many of us expect that he would argue. He doesn't argue like Sabbath doesn't matter. That the, uh, he doesn't go to the Pharisees and say, come on, man, lay off. Uh, who are you to judge after all? His response, in fact, is not to disregard the Sabbath. The closer we look at it, he actually is defending this law of God. He defends the purpose of the Sabbath. He argues that in trying to protect the Sabbath, though, the Pharisees had missed out on its purpose. And so he gives us two purposes that I want us to look at if we take these accounts together. That Sabbath was for human good and for human need. Notice verse 27 first, human good. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay, so the other day, I was driving on I-55 when suddenly a car swerves around me in the emergency lane, pulls straight in front of me, and then goes on to weave in and out of traffic. And I, my first reaction was to get ticked off. Okay, so I just was upset at this guy who was speeding and didn't seem to obey the rules of the road until I saw in the passenger seat a woman whose feet were up on the dash grabbing her belly and clear agony on her face. There was a baby about to enter that world. And so I shifted from being irritated to cheering this guy on. Go, man, go! You know, it's interesting. He was, why didn't I care all of a sudden about his speeding any longer? Why do speed limits and traffic laws exist in the first place? For the good of the drivers on the road, for their safety, right? The law doesn't exist for the law's sake. The law exists for our good. Now, please don't hear me suggest that God breaks his law or that he wants us to do the same. That is not at all what's taking place here. Jesus is not breaking God's law. He's defending God's law. The only rules he is breaking are the house rules that the Pharisees have set up around it. But in a sense, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, don't you see what your rules have done? They have caused you to miss the very point of what you're trying to protect. Sabbath is for your good. 
do you really think that snitching grain is what God meant when he said to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? The Sabbath wasn't simply a random expectation of God to keep his people in line. The Sabbath was for the good of his people. And we'd say at least for the rest they would get, including rest for those who would normally not get that kind of protection, like servants. We all need rest. God has designed us to have limits. I want you to just try and go without sleep for a while. Anybody nurses here who you've gone like a 48-hour shift? You know how much, the, how, how much the human body needs rest. You can't go long without it before serious physical things begin to happen to you. God has imposed these limits on us. He knows and he's designed us for a need for rest. But the Sabbath was also about something more than rest, more than just getting a day off from work and breaking from their normal work, especially in a society that would not do something like this at all. They were functionally preaching to themselves and to everyone around that they belonged to a God who created the world and sustains the world without their help. He is king over all things. He does not panic or need us to do what he does. He is infinitely aware and infinitely capable, and we belong to him body and soul. The pressures of the week might cause them to feel a great deal of anxiety, or the payoffs of the week might cause them to feel rather full of themselves. But at least one day a week, the rich and the poor, the slave and the free, men and women, citizen and foreigner, would be reminded God is God. I am not. And he is ruling the world fine without me. Sabbath sets limits on their own self-importance. It preached their necessary dependence upon God, and it reoriented them into, uh, under God's big picture to show them where they fit and where God fits. You know, when we fail to rest, friends, and I'm saying this probably just to myself, I fear that we miss this same opportunity. At least some of the anxiety I face, at least week to week, is due to the fact that I've not built physical reminders in my life that God is God and I am not. Like getting sleep, or taking a day off, or getting time for me to weekly worship with my family. Even while Sabbath is not imposed on Christians any longer, in fact, in the New Testament, it is the one commandment that Jesus does not reiterate for us. It's not reinforced. Nonetheless, its purpose still holds, I am convinced. God has created us with limits, limits that declare to us that God is God and, God, and we are not. And we need to sometimes impose limits on our very selves to remind ourselves of that. Sabbath is for human good. But second, Sabbath is for human need. Verse 25 refers to an example from the life of David. Now, David was the most significant king of Israel, but this is before he becomes king, and he's on run from the king of the land who's abusing his power, hunting David down, and David's got men with him. Now, he doesn't tell this priest this, but he shows up to the tabernacle desperate and hungry, asking for the priest something to feed him and his men. Well, the problem was is in the tabernacle at this time, they didn't have any other food, what he calls the common bread to give them. There was only the bread that was called the bread of the presence. It was 12 loaves of bread that were set out on the Sabbath 
so that the priests would, would uh, feed themselves, be able to eat something from, this, from, this, uh, from these loaves. And these loaves were representing God's relationship with his people. And so only the priests were allowed to eat of this bread. You see the parallel here? It's the same question. Was the priest breaking the law to feed David and his men? The priest, I don't think so, recognized that Sabbath exists not only for our good, but for human need. And he mercifully fed those in need with the bread of the presence. You see, if the Sabbath was given to God's people that they may not only find rest, but perceive practically their own need for God, then Sabbath should, in fact, prepare them to better meet the needs of others. We often say here that Christians are only fellow beggars pointing other beggars to the bread. This means that every Christian is a needy Christian. No Christian comes because they have a great resume or because somehow they've been uh, smarter to figure this whole thing out or because they've obeyed the rules enough. Christians come as those who are in need for something they cannot provide themselves. And every Christian who understands their need as well as how those needs have been met in Jesus Christ will want to, be eager to, be looking for every opportunity to meet the needs of others. Jesus understands that the Sabbath of all days is a day for meeting the needs of others. In fact, notice how he sets up the contrast in verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent. You know, Jesus, he, he, the way he frames it is there's really only two options when we're presented with need to do good or to do harm. Meaning that a failure to good, to do good, sorry, failure to do good is the same as contributing to evil. James will put this in his book um, in a letter he was going to write to Christians, verse 17 in chapter 4. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Jesus' point to the Pharisees is that on a day when human beings are reminded of how needy they are, doesn't it make sense to obey God by meeting the needs of those who are around them? It isn't, shouldn't be just simply permissible to do good on the Sabbath. They should be arguing with Jesus that it is right, even necessary, for Jesus to do good on the Sabbath. And this leads us, number three, to the problem of Sabbath, the problem of Sabbath. I want us to notice Jesus' response in all of this. So when Jesus sees what he says, their hardness of heart, how does he respond? He say, like, oh, it's all right, guys. I get it. It's difficult for you to get this. No, he gets angry and he grieves. You think about Jesus ever getting angry? Sometimes the Bible, again, will say there are right reasons for getting angry. There are righteous reasons for getting angry. Jesus gets angry at several points in his life. There are some things that's right and good to get angry about. Now, many of us, we just know unrighteous anger, so it's hard to have for us to have a category of this. But Jesus gets angry and grieves. He gets emotionally riled up here. The question is, is why would he get mad? Think about it. Isn't it ironic that on a day when it seems it would make the most sense to do good, 
that the Pharisees not only want to deny Jesus from doing something good, they then go on the Sabbath to plot something very evil to destroy him. I have to tell you, you and I, though, were very similar to the Pharisees, more so than we realize. You see, I know that some of us don't really care about following whatever rules God has put in place. But I think some of us, in fact, many of us, in fact, many of us who might call ourselves Christians, we have a rather unhealthy relationship with the rules. We see obedience largely as something that it, as what it takes to keep God happy with me. A way to ensure that God won't strike me down or take something from me. That again, it's a way to keep God under my thumb, a way to get, have a God that's predictable, a God who will show up, a God who will in fact answer my prayers as I want them to be answered. Can you relate to this at all? That sometimes we obey the rules just to know that God is on my side, on my team, will show up when I need him to help. Many of us, we carry scars because God has not showed up how we wanted him to, and we look at God and say, haven't you seen all that I've done? I mean, come on, God, surely. I mean, you may not owe them, but you surely owe me something. But, you know, you don't actually have to be religious at all to be a legalist. All it takes is operating by some sort of self-imposed set of rules, rules which, by which you try to maintain control over your life and prove that you are worth your salt, at least more worth it than they are. If they only saw what you did, could do what you did, if only they could be as put together. It doesn't take a religious person to do that. One of the many problems is that legalism, which is what this is, makes us hard-hearted, as Jesus puts it. But what does it mean to be hard-hearted? Well, it means two things, I think, um, practically speaking. That legalism makes us both blind and it makes us selfish. Let's talk about the first. So legalism makes us blind. So I say that because legalism keeps us from seeing our hearts, ourselves, very clearly. We don't see ourselves clearly at all. And legalists think they see themselves really, really well. We can, you know, when we make obedience a matter of outward performance, we can comfort ourselves that if only we find out the rules and enough of the rules that I need to obey and obey them at least most of the time, then God and I are fine. Legalists assume, so long as I stay on this side of the line, then I don't really need to worry about my relationship with God. The only questions a legalist really cares to answer is, am I, am I in the clear here? Are my hands clean at least? Only legalism can't really answer those questions because it cannot see itself clearly at all. Legalism is an expert at justifying itself and comparing itself to others. Let me ask you, have you ever replayed an argument in your head? Okay, have you ever lost that argument? Not when we're replaying it, right? We're always the winners. We always come back on top. If I only would have said this, it would have shut him down for sure. The Pharisees never considered they might be wrong because, of course, they understood and obeyed the law, unable to see that they had missed its very purpose. Some of us, I think, this goes to me too, feel as passionate as the Pharisees did about Sabbath 
We feel as passionate about some issue as the Pharisees felt about Sabbath, and we have so wasted our lives demonizing those on the other side that we have never considered once that we might be wrong. Maybe music style, maybe some perspective on the end times, maybe on the absence or the presence of racism or a political party, or patriotism, or something else. Legalism makes us blind, unable to see ourselves clearly and consider that we might in fact be wrong. But legalism also, also makes us selfish, legalism. Legalism that makes it unable for us to not only see ourselves clearly, we can't see uh, others in front of us who are in need, of need who, are, who are in need, who are in need of help, Do you think the Pharisees, for instance, took notice of the man with the withered hand before that day in the synagogue? Do you think they saw his need with compassion or simply as an opportunity to make Jesus look bad? Legalism turns us inward, unable to see or care about anyone but ourselves. It doesn't just make us mean. Legalism makes us indifferent And sometimes, isn't indifference the crueler response? Let me give you a practical example. I've seen, over time, many religious people devote themselves rather admirably to paying off debt in their lives. It's a good and noble thing. God is very clear about the slave master of debt. We should avoid debt as we can. But I've seen many religious people in devoting themselves to paying off debt become, it becomes a point of pride for them. And unfortunately, I've seen some of these same people who get devoted to paying off debt of all things become some of the least generous people that I've ever met. They find all sorts of excuses to avoid being generous, like arguing they will have more freedom to do so later in life. It's like that, it's like that cousin who promises you if he ever wins the lottery, you're getting half. I tell you what, it's probably not going to happen because I've rarely seen someone who has spent their whole life not being generous all of a sudden get more generous when they get more money. Sometimes something as good as debt repayment becomes another form of selfishness. I've also seen this when it comes to sharing the gospel. Again, our church's mission is to make disciples who make disciples, to make more followers of Jesus to be active in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, that job God has given to you, and it's my job to help you in doing so, to do so as a member of this church, but together to make disciples who love Jesus Christ, who are joyful and passionate about him. But I've seen some who become passionate about holiness, supposedly, about obeying God's laws, but then the desire for obedience which isn't really true obedience, that desire for obedience, ends up making them cold to their neighbors, even their family. They become critical in whatever relationship they're in. They're trapped in their own resentments because their only concern is defending their side or preserving their sense of righteousness. They become very indifferent to the very ones that Jesus has sent them to love, unable to see those who are hurting around them and considering that I just might have an opportunity to help. After all, I'm just one beggar pointing other beggars to the bread. Legalism can make us silent, friends, like the Pharisees, in face of another one's need 
intent on observing the law while missing its very purpose. Which leads us to our fourth point, the point of the Sabbath. It's no wonder to see why Jesus gets so riled up, is it? Over their indifference, in fact, the only place where we find Jesus feels stronger than this is in Mark's gospel, where he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, experiencing sorrow over his coming death. It's the only place that's more extreme than this. And I think this anger and grief, though, is over a more important reason than one we've already mentioned. It's not just indifference in the face of others. For this, we need to look one more time at the passage, um, the first passage, verse 27. Again, if you would allow me to read this, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, but verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I mentioned before that this conflict is about more than a religious holiday. It's about a matter of identity. It's about Jesus himself. And if you listen closely, Jesus is making this connection directly for them. The primary reason that the disciples snitching grain and that is healing of a withered man's hand were permissible is not simply that the Sabbath is for our good and for human need, but because he is the point of the Sabbath. The word Lord here means something like master or boss. And in the original language, it really stands out. In other words, you might summarize this verse as answering a question. Who, wait a second, who is master over the Sabbath? The Pharisees would have, of course, assumed, uh, well, God is. But notice what Jesus says. He says, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, a title with rich origins in the Old Testament in which he is already applied to himself. In fact, in verse 10, he calls himself the Son of Man before claiming the authority to forgive sins. And now he calls himself the Son of Man before claiming authority over the Sabbath itself. Again, only God, only God could claim this kind of authority. Jesus isn't dismissing that. Jesus is, in fact, claiming to be God himself in doing this. And if it is true, if this claim is true, not only does Jesus know, and not only can Jesus reveal the very purpose of Sabbath, he is the final point of it. Deuteronomy 5 hints at this when it repeats, us, repeats the Ten Commandments. Again, God cares so much about these Ten Commandments, he just gives it to him twice. But when it repeats this very one, after it says, again, obey it because God is creator and he set up the world to work as Lord, he gives them another command immediately after this. What's one more reason that God gives to observe the Sabbath? Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. They are told not only to remember Sabbath, but to remember something else on the Sabbath, to remember their rescue from slavery. Why? Two reasons, I think. First, because Sabbath was only a picture of the rest they actually needed. Not just physical rest, the rest that comes with knowing and belonging to God. But second, because this Sabbath, this rest from the greatest work, the work that we can't seem to give up on, would only come because the greatest work had been finished. No work could be more important than the work of God's rescue. And it is only by that work, that rest is finally possible. Later on in the Bible, the author of Hebrews would say, So then, there remains a 
Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The author of Hebrews is saying that Sabbath couldn't bring about the rest that we needed, that this rest remains open for us, one that we need still. Let me ask you, are you tired, friends? Tired of trying to prove something to others, yourself, or to God and your obedience? Hoping that this time it just might be enough. Are you tired of comparing yourself, of trying to justify yourself, of struggling to care? The thing is, many of us are trying to bring about rest through legalism, too. Trying to control our lives and others, turning inward, cold, and blind to the needs around us and to the one who really has control in the first place. But legalism, it can't bring rest. It only adds burdens. Our rest can't be accomplished by our efforts at all. It must come as it came to the Israelites by God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm through an even greater exodus, an even greater rescue than the one that came to Israel, the rescue accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross, by his death in our place, paying for the very selfish attempts that we had been attempting to rescue ourselves. And in his resurrection from the grave, which brings life and rest to the restless, this is the work that we could not do and needed to be done. This is the work that has finally and only been finished in Jesus. And this work that you want to experience, you want to experience the rest of, is only received by faith. And so those who trust in him can finally give up on their legalism. They can rest from their work because he has worked for you and his work is finished. Friends, are you tired today? Sometimes, again, We need rest, and we realize it more and more in our lives. We're realizing again that we have a rest that goes deeper than being physically tired. We're tired from trying to control our life and others. We're tired of trying to work from a place of anxiety and fear. We're tired from working for, in a sense, our own salvation. Do you want to be able to work from a place of rest, free from the need to prove yourself to others? Rest is offered only to those who will put their faith in him. Sometimes we need physical rest to press this rest into our own hearts. So sometimes the most godly thing you could do this week is to set up a day off. Or perhaps one of the most godly things you could do today is to take a nap. But one of the godliest things, again, is not to just rest, but to remember the point of this rest. As you even feel anxiety in that rest, it's preaching at you. You can rest from your works now because of Christ. His work is done. Would you pray with me? Lord, we could still say so much about this, about the Sabbath and the need for the Sabbath rest in our life, but it's only come through Jesus Christ and we want him to be high and lifted up. We want to rest in him. We want to give up on our works. We want to hear his good words that we already heard today that he says to take off our burden, to take off our yoke of slavery, and to take on his yoke, obedience and allegiance to him, to choose loyalty to Jesus instead of anything else, because that loyalty alone can provide the rest that we're longing for. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, as you say, and I will give you rest. We pray that those who don't know Jesus would find rest in that today, and those of us who do know Christ
would live out of that rest, giving up on the need to prove ourselves to you any longer or to others, and to do so out of joy, knowing the work that has been done on our behalf, the work of the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's his name that we pray in. Amen.